today. Uh, I'm going to start out, I'm going to tell you guys a story about a dude called Andrew, okay? It's not this Andrew, because um, this Andrew I want to tell you about um, was a kid in World War II, and he's not that old. <laughs> so Andrew was a Dutch kid <coughs> growing up in World War II. He was um, a middle child of a large family, one of the middle kids. Um, his parents were very poor. His dad was a deaf blacksmith, probably from all the banging metal, and his mum was partially disabled. So in life, he was afforded very little. He didn't achieve much of an education. He, um, he pretty much had nothing. He was just like, whatever, troops roll through, and he's kind of that street kid that would get kicked out of the way. Um, Andrew did pretty well for himself, though. When he was 18, he joined the Dutch army, and he went off to war. Um, he did pretty well. He had actually a natural sharp intellect and he progressed well. He became a commando in the Dutch army until at the age of 20 when fighting in Indonesia, he got a bullet wound in his ankle, which saw him discharged from the army and he had to go back home to his hometown as a cripple, disabled like his parents. Now, could you imagine the crushing fall of that? Okay, you're a poor kid, you've sort of dragged yourself up in life and then you're you make it, you're a commando in the army, you know, you're an SAS dude, there's a lot of prestige that goes along with that. Next thing, you're a cripple back, just like your parents. Now that sort of crushing fall, along with a lot of the horrors that he saw as a soldier, and um, he, had, he did have a sort of natural ego, along with those sorts of things, just saw him sort of spiral into a, a, a lifestyle of a lot of drinking and a lot of fighting. Sort of came to the end of himself where eventually he ended up in a church meeting and he began to, um, this is interesting, came along the next week, came along consecutive weeks, and he, um, he would spend the nights after the church meeting at home reading a Bible, an old Bible that he had at home, the verses that the sermon was about. And the Word of God spoke to him through those verses and he submitted, he laid aside his ego, he humbled himself and he came to the cross of Jesus Christ and he accepted the Lord into his life and then that night he became a Christian. And early in his Christian life he prayed this prayer, he said, Lord, if you will show me the way, I will follow you. And so then God's call on Andrew's life was into the mission field. He educated himself, he attended missionary training school in Glasgow, Scotland and he went off and he completed that and he had many adventures following the pursuit of God after that prayer that he prayed. And now what I'm going to read you now is a bit of an account of one of those adventures and to set the scene, um, this is the height, when, when this thing takes place, this is the height of the Cold War, there's communist countries all around the world are shutting their borders, um, uh, they're keeping very tight rein on what is coming into and what's going out of their country. But God had called Andrew to help the Christians behind the Iron Curtain by delivering Bibles to them. And he was given the ability to serve God in this and his brothers and sisters in the Soviet Union, which as a regime was actively trying to eradicate Christianity and wipe it out from within its borders. So this is Andrew's story. He says, When I pulled up to the checkpoint on the other side of the Danube, I said to myself, well, I'm in luck, only half a dozen cars. This Romanian border crossing should go swiftly. 
But when it took 40 minutes to inspect the first car, I began to worry. Literally everything that that family was carrying had to be taken out and spread on the ground. Every car in line was put through the same routine. The fourth inspection lasted well over an hour. The guards took the driver inside and they kept him there while they removed the hubcaps, took his engine apart, removed seats. Dear Lord, I said, as at last there was just one car ahead of me, what am I going to do? Any serious inspection will show up these Romanian Bibles right away. So I want to leave the story there. In, with leave Andrew in that predicament. You guys will just, we'll, we'll pick it up later. You guys will just need to stay awake and tuned in. <laughs> and we'll, we'll finish it later. So anyway, here's Andrew. He's heeding God's message from Jesus. Um, he's to call, uh, he's, he's, yeah, he's called up into this work. He's got this, um, he's called to do this work for God and he's come up against a tough, and maybe impassable barrier. So let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, and we'll read from there. Um, today we're, also, we're obviously looking at the message um, to the church in Philadelphia, um, the message from Jesus to his church in Philadelphia. And this is exactly the same situation, a very similar situation to what this church has come up against, similar to what Andrew has. Okay? Philadelphia are a little church. They're a non-influential, very unpowerful church. Does that sound familiar, Willow Byrne? And from a worldly success point of view, this church is just a small fry religious group that can sort of be ignored and bullied. But they're a church nonetheless, and they belong to King Jesus. That's his church. So let's read Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name." Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come down and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. <clears throat> I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Now, the main points of that message are all fairly easy to understand. There's a few tricky sort of images. And one of those images that probably don't, doesn't stick out obviously to us is the open doors. And the open door is used just as an analogy to sort of um, represent an opportunity in ministry in doing God's work. Um, Luke, in Acts 14, I think it is no need to turn to it. He recalls 
uh, Paul at the end of his first missionary journey, coming back to his home church of Antioch and filling in his brothers and sisters there about the work that God had done on his missionary journey. And he refers to um, um, praising God for opening a door of faith to the Gentiles. And then Paul also, in his two letters to the Corinthians, um, tells them of the effective work. He tells them of the open doors and the effective work and ministry and preaching God's word to, um, to people in Ephesus and, and Troas. And then even in prison, uh, he, when he's writing his letter to the saints in Colossae, he writes, he also asks them to pray for him for an open door of sharing God's word while he's locked up in prison. Optimist, that guy, wasn't he? So, in understanding this picture of the open door is one of opportunity to do God's work, I want us to set up a bit of a structure in our minds that will help us sort of understand the message and to relate to what is happening here, to visualise the larger picture. Okay, so this is the structure. There is a door standing open in a room, okay, full of joy and satisfaction in Jesus and in doing God's work. Okay, that's the open door. That's our opportunity to enter it. We have an opportunity to enter in. However, standing between the door and us is an obstacle course, a big obstacle course, okay? Think like Wipeout or American Ninja or those kind of shows, if you're familiar with them. If not, maybe 80s style, maybe It's a Knockout, you know, those kind of things. Um, now, these obstacles, though, aren't just physical, okay? They can be mental, and in all likelihood, they're probably spiritual as well, okay? These obstacles that must be overcome to reach the open door. Now, this obstacle course, it can't be going around, you can't go under it, you can't go over it, we're going to have to go through it, okay? We're going on an open door hunt, not a bear hunt. <laughs> Okay, so that's the sort of, that's the structure, that's what we are sort of looking at and understanding today. Because overcoming these obstacles in order to make much of the open doors is God's message to us. This is us doing the message to Philadelphia in Revelation. So opportunities of open doors, obstacles and us as hopefully overcomers. So there's three O's. So if you're a Presbyterian, there's the three points. If you're a Baptist and you like your acronyms, there's your three O's. And yeah, I'm just a brother kid, so I'll just talk through the service. So let's look firstly at understanding these, these open doors of opportunity, hey? Um, notice in the greeting that Jesus is referred to as the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now, Jesus, uh, this is Jesus, the Holy One, the True One, the one who wields this key is the commander of which door is shut and which is opened. And his decision on that is final. Nothing in this world can change that. So, as it is Jesus opening these doors of opportunities, it would make sense, it stands to reason, that they will, all these opportunities will always be in line with God's Word. Always be in line with that. That's the test. <clears throat> now, these open doors can take many forms. They could be um, uh, the prompting of the Holy Spirit to speak of me now, 
to a work colleague or a stranger. It could be um, maybe the ability to put yourself out for someone who needs help and in doing so, show them, pass on the love that Jesus has in your life and how it's affected you. Um, as it says in Galatians 3, um, as we have opportunity, uh, do good to all, I think, and in particular, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, these opportunities could look like the calling to go sacrifice yourself um, in the mission field far away or at home or even just to be wronged by somebody, to bear with somebody, to turn the other cheek to somebody. And in doing so, you're showing that this life is not what is most valuable to you. Now, there's some examples. Is there, do you see any commonality between those opportunities? Obviously, you know, they're all in line with God's Word. But there's another similar thing, and that is that they all, and here's the bit that, here's the bit that will really bite. These open doors opportunities, they will always cost you something to enter it, okay, something that the natural man inside us doesn't ever want to give. <clears throat> if you want to enter these open doors and you want to make much of God-given opportunity, then it will cost you things, it will cost you embarrassment, it will cost you money, it will cost you discomfort, it might cost you freedoms, it might even cost you your life. I'm ashamed when I think of myself in this light because the most I ever really want to give is just a few bucks here and there or, <coughs> or a Saturday morning or a bit of an awkward conversation and discomfort in front of some workmates. Like, that's not enough. But that's, yeah, that's something that I'm working through. I, I clutch with, um, with white-knuckled grip all my easy lifestyleisms that I have in my life and make my life comfortable. I... I grip them so hard, is it because, it, is it then, is it no wonder then that God loves a cheerful giver? You know, if a cheerful giver is, some, is just able and happy to just give up the stuff that they have, then much, they're much freer, much more able to make much of open doors, give up what they don't need to make much of these open doors set before them. Yeah. So anyway... That leads us into the obstacles between us and the open doors. This is the, the big obstacle course. Now, these could be weaknesses, like our little church in Philadelphia, weaknesses. They could be weakness or lying enemies. Or, as in the case of our mate Andrew earlier, they could be a border crossing with guards. Or they could be in little dark things in our minds that are seemingly, well... We think they're private. They might, you might think they're innocuous, like a personal aversion to someone of a different race or theological background or whatever. And that's, if you keep those little thoughts in the back of your mind in the dark corners, then that's an obstacle for you as well. And just before we get moving into these obstacles, I also want to spend some time to think about the source of where they come from. Um, Sure, there are everyday obstacles that we can get over with by doing some physical training or reading a self-help book or whatever. But today, we're specifically talking about God-given opportunities, God-given open doors. So it makes sense then that we would come under, come up against 
tough opposition, like spiritual opposition, um, we are warned in this. And that roaring lion, Satan, seeking, roaming around seeking who he can devour, or in other words, seeking who, which Christians he can put off their God-given tasks. So whilst the obstacles might look physical or mental, in all likelihood they could have that spiritual background as well. So it's something for us to be mindful of. Now Paul, when referring to his open doors of ministry, we're going to look at two of them um, now, when he refers to them, he also refers to the things that are hindering him from them, the things that are stopping him, slowing him down, whatever. And I see these obstacles in two sort of types based on their locus of control. There are external obstacles and then there's internal obstacles. And Paul mentions both that hindered him. So to show you what I mean, let's jump into um, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and we'll look at the external obstacle. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 5, and I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I don't, do not want to see you now just in passing. <coughs> I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. That Just that last bit, for a wide door for effective work has been opened to me and there are many adversaries. Like, who are these adversaries that, that Paul's talking about? If we go back to the story in Acts um, 19, I think it is, these, the two adversaries that are there in Ephesus are firstly those in the synagogue, who Paul spent months reasoning with and they just became hard of heart and just refused to believe the good news that Paul was bringing them. And then there's the, the rioting silversmiths who were obviously upset about the downturn in the idolatry trade because of people ditching their idols and coming to Christ. They're the two obstacles. So... Let's examine these a little bit more and see if they sound familiar in what we are likely to encounter today. Thanks, babe. First off, the dudes in the, in the synagogue, okay? There are people, probably intellectual, high society type people, who when presented with truth, remain stubborn. And they cling to their existing views. And people, these people can be reasoned with for months, okay? And they and with good arguments, and they still remain hardened and prideful. And as a result, they continue into a deeper level of stubbornness. And eventually then these people begin to speak against the truth. They deride the truth and they mock it. And they begin preaching their opposing views to other people. And I see this really evident in the wave of new atheism today, okay? And the new free scientific, in inverted commas, way of thinking. Now, we take these proud, hardened preachers against the truth, known as knowledgeable experts, and we add them into a society with um, everyday people who take their, who get their prospering and their wealth and in pleasure from doing things contrary to what 
God would want. And you end up with a society in Ephesus very similar to a society, a Western society today. The external obstacle for Paul in Ephesus was a society hardened in, um, and conditioned to be hostile to God. How many times are we prevented from open doors by what a hostile society thinks of us or says about us? How many times? Like if the answer is a little or a lot or all the time, then I'd say, welcome to Willowburn, welcome to church, you're broken people like everybody else, like it's good that you're here. But I ask that question mainly to lead us into thinking about, um, I, I I ask that question to lead us into thinking of the other type of obstacle, the internal obstacle. Okay, see the internal obstacle is the real engine room where the external obstacles really get their power. Let's think of an example. Well, I was on a mission trip years ago in Vanuatu and um, I was on a little back blocks island with a few islander people (coughs) and um, I had the privilege and the opportunity to visit some of the blue holes over there and these holes are really um, deep pits in the limestone under the jungle. Obviously, they surface on the jungle. The jungle grows around them and they're just like this little oasis in the middle of the jungle. And um, they have this amazing pure water that as the water seeps through the limestone, it's very pure. And it's got this amazing sort of blue tinge to it. They're really amazing places. If you have the opportunity to visit it, to visit them, absolutely do it. And these places, these blue holes can be up to 30 metres deep, some of them. And you wouldn't even know from... Looking from snorkeling across the top and looking down, you can see logs and leaves and everything perfectly clearly on the bottom, a long way down. They are amazing places. Now, growing beside these blue holes, having access to this pure water source right there, is large, large, large trees, like really large trees. And the local fun activity for the Islander kids over there is obviously to climb up into these trees and jump into the blue holes. Now, when in Rome, you do, uh, actually, I was in Vanuatu, and I do as the Vanuatuans do, um, I was going to give this a crack, which is fine. So, climbing up the tree was no worries, up and up and up. I love climbing, as a tr- climbing kids as a tree, one branch to another, that's fine. Until I made it to the main launch pad branch, And I should have mentioned, from looking down at the ground, I thought maybe the branch where the kids were jumping from was about 10 conservatively metres, maybe 15 metres. That's pretty high. I'm not an Olympic diver, though. Those dudes, mad respect. But I was terrified. And I was looking down. And I was seeing my friends' mouths move before I could hear them, before I could hear their words of encouragement and their goading, more like. Now, I have this opportunity, this exhilarating opportunity in front of me, okay? But the climb was high and the the branch that I'm sitting on is smooth and wet and slippery. The fall is long and the blue hole I'm jumping into is narrow and and the gap I'm jumping through vines is narrow too. 
Now, these are all valid external obstacles. Why? Why, why are they obstacles? Yeah. These obstacles become obstacles because of my fear. My internal thoughts are playing through all the possible scenarios of, and, and of what can happen and giving these external obstacles weight. If, and I begin to think, what if I don't jump far enough? What if I jump too far? What if I hit my head on a branch on the way down or catch my leg on a vine on the way down? Is my travel insurance high enough? <laughs> Who's going to look after my dog at home if I die? And then, and then things get really weird and my mind goes to these crazy places like, what will people think of me when they're going through my stuff and they're going through my financial records and these sorts of things? And it was a really dark, weird place, but my mind went there. Fear does crazy things. See, fear of the external was my internal obstacle that needed overcoming. My internal obstacle was causing me to see these external obstacles greater than the opportunity that I had in front of me. I'll say that again. My internal obstacle of fear was putting more weight on the external obstacles than the great opportunity I had right there in front of me to jump and take this experience. So I did make the jump that day. I did overcome my obstacles and I'm so glad that I did because during the fall, and it was a long fall, I actually had time to complete full thoughts. I first thought, you're an idiot. <laughs> and then I thought, you're even more of an idiot if this pool's not deep enough. And then, and then I began to think, oh, this is actually not too bad. This will make a great life lesson. One, <laughs> And then as I'm coming up through all the bubbles and the, the blue tinged water and it's just so serene down there and I was so glad I had overcome those obstacles because that was so much better than those external obstacles could ever be. Now to relate this back to my point about societal pressures, what gets the most weight and importance? Okay, the obstacles or the open door? Do you fear men and what they think of you? Do I fear men and what they think of me? Yes. Or do I fear God and how will I explain to him as he is sitting in judge that I sort of put off and ignored those open doors that he gave me because of what a few men thought of me? <clears throat> so let's pull this back to God's word and see Paul's experience of an internal giving weight to the external. Let's turn over a page or two. 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 12, 2 to 2, 2, 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So here's Paul on his way to Macedonia and he's got plans to meet his brother in Christ and his co-working um, fr friend, Titus. And Titus doesn't show. He's at the port, there's their ship. Where's Titus? And Paul says, my spirit was not at rest or I was anxious as to where Titus was or what had happened to him. 
And I think if many of you had travelling plans to go overseas travelling with a buddy and your plane's boarding and your mate's not there, you'd be anxious too. You flick out your phone, probably send him a text message or call him, hey, oi dude, where are you? Plane's about to leave. And that's you with a smartphone. And the only messenger that Paul has is a two-legged messenger or a carrier pigeon. Okay, so no wonder he was anxious. Boat's about to leave. Titus, where are you? Let's jump over a, couple of, a few chapters over to Corinthians chapter 7 and we'll look at how Titus, sorry, how Paul feels when he's reunited with Titus. And we'll read verse... Yeah, we'll stay in verse 5, chapter 7, verse 5 of 2 Corinthians. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So Paul's exhausted by his obstacles here. He's got, he says he was afflicted at every turn, fighting without, external obstacle, Fear within, internal obstacle. And he's made it to Macedonia, the place where he was called to go in Acts 14 or 16, I think. 16, I think. Even though when you read that account, there's a few closed doors there too. Side note, but I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail. So, he's made it. He has achieved the open door. He's made it to Macedonia the one that God has set before him to carry out his work, and, oh, the comfort and the joy that comes from being reunited with Titus. Happy days. So, let's return now to our very unpowerful little church in Revelation 3. Our church of Philadelphia, as I'm coming down to the crux now, okay, we've got an understanding of the open doors and what they are. We've got an understanding of obstacles and sort of how they relate to open doors. Often... They may well be physical or mental, in all likelihood probably spiritual if it's hindering God's work, Um, spiritual influences from the outside and sinful heart issue hindrances from the inside. So identifying the open doors is good and important and identifying obstacles is good and important. But if that's all we're doing, if we can just identify those two, then it's not of much use. Okay, we're just sitting on the sideline observing and observing is the wrong O word. What was our, other, what was our third O word from before? Overcomers. <laughs> That's exactly right. Wrong O word. Okay, if we, were, if we are to do revelation, we need to be overcomers. It's what we're called to in all these messages. He who conquers, he who overcomes. So how do we do that? How do, we, how do we be overcomers, I hear you ask? Like, how do I overcome the obstacles in my life to make much of the open doors set before me? How do, I, how do I do it? How do I overcome? Give me the self-help book that tells me how to overcome my fear and I'll read it cover to cover. Give me that, send me a link to that TED talk that tells me about overcoming my addictions for a day and I'll watch it at breakfast every day and I'll be right. Um, Send me that pamphlet for that wellness retreat run by that Hindu guru dude that um, tells me how to find myself. You know, do, send it to me, give it to me, whatever, whatever I need to be overcome. How do I overcome? Okay. 
give me something. How do I overcome? Okay, we'll give it to you, all right? Here it is. Are you ready? All the obstacles have already been overcome. All the obstacles have all been defeated. There is nothing you need do on your own now. Jesus has overcome the power of all the obstacles in your life through his body, through his violent death on the cross, and he sealed it with his resurrection from death. 1 Corinthians 15. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8. In all these things, what are these things? A couple of verses earlier. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 1 John 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is God? Who? See, Jesus has overcome our obstacles and we overcome the obstacles by walking with him. Walking closely with him. Jesus took complete control of the obstacles for his Philadelphian church. Look at that, verse 9. He's forcing the church's enemies to bow down. Verse 10, he is keeping his church from the hour of trial coming onto the world because they endured in him by completely depending on him and on his word. So walk closely beside Jesus, will I burn, and in him overcome. Check yourself daily, hourly, far out, even minutely, okay? Are you walking with him? Think, am I thinking about Jesus? Am I obeying Jesus? Am I talking to Jesus? Am I spending at least, at least a good session, a day deep in his word, thinking about what it means, how I apply it to my life, admiring him through it? Am I trusting myself to Jesus and his promises? Last weekend, we were at Camille's parents' place. That's why we weren't at church. We weren't wagging. We weren't having sleep-ins or anything like that. Um, and they have quite a steep concrete driveway. They live in Brisbane, as we know. Like, there's a lot of goat trails over there and a lot of steep driveways, lots of hills, different things. And their concrete is stamped concrete for anti-slip. It's very, very rough surface. Great in the wet. Um, uh, yeah, very, very rough surface. And usually on the excitement of arriving at Ma and Pa's place, our kids just, if they're, if they're awake, sometimes they're asleep, if they're awake, it's just out, all doors open, they just want to get out, up to the front door to greet Ma and Pa. And Gino, that's right, Gino's the dog. And now Torin has never walked up the driveway by himself ever before. He's our two-year-old. And now last Friday night was his first attempt and he's a stubbornly independent little dude that doesn't like to take help from anybody, preferring much more to crash and burn by himself. Daddy's boy. <laughs> now, he took off up this driveway, okay, um, slow and steady, like a little climber, climbing, 
Mount Everest. And he was almost at the top until his weight shifted oddly and he took a step backwards down and then it just, house of cards. And he slid down this rough driveway on his knees and on his hand and he took bark off everywhere and spent the next little while a sobbing mess crying for band-aids. See, he was beaten. He was beaten. His obstacle beat him. But the next day, the next day, he was all too keen to hold my hand as I steadily walked him down the stairs, walked him down the driveway, back up the driveway, back up the stairs a few times in the day. You see, I had already overcome the obstacle of the driveway and the stairs. I'm an adult. I'd beaten it before. Okay? And I could easily help him through as long as he stayed close to me, as long as he held my hand. He was holding my hand and I could give him balance. I could give him stability. See, God used my little two-year-old son last week to tell me the message of Philadelphia. And I I knew God telling me then, he said, Ben, you have an opportunity to serve me and to do my kingdom work, but you are weak, man. And you are prone to pride and you are prone to denying me and you are prone to fall when you're by yourself. Hold my hand, son. Hold my hand. I've got these obstacles in the bag. They, They don't affect me anymore. I've overcome them. Hold my hand, son. Don't go off by yourself. Don't. Come back to me. Don't go off by yourself. You'll fall. You'll make a mess of yourself. Come back to me. Hold my hand. Walk beside me. See, God has set before you that open door and through his death on the cross, he has sealed the the overcoming for you. The obstacles are beaten. You only need now walk closely beside him like the Philadelphians do, who, verse 8, they kept his word and they did not deny his name. And verse 10, they patiently endured. They were holding his hand and they were following his lead into the opportunity of serving in his good work in their city. Oh, Lord, I want, just want to hold your hand. I just want to let go of my clenched fist of just stuff that I hold on to. I just want to free my hands to hold on to your hands, Lord, and just walk beside you <laughs> and get my stability and strength from you, Lord. Amen. Um, now, who remembers the story of Andrew from my introduction earlier that you all thought I'd forgotten about? Thanks, Nadine. Good. Well, we remember the predicament that he was in. Yeah? He's stuck in a roadblock search with armed guards about to go through his car full of contraband Bibles. He had his opportunity and now he was up against the obstacle. Let's, Let's finish his story, his words. He goes on. Lord, I know that no amount of cleverness on my part can get me through this border search. Dare I ask for a miracle? Let me take some of the Bibles out and leave them in the open where they can be seen. Then, Lord, I cannot possibly be depending on my own stratagems, can I? I will be depending utterly upon you. 
While the last car was going through its chilling inspection, I managed to take several Bibles from their hiding places and pile them on the seat beside me. It was my turn. I put the little V-dub in low gear, inched up to the officer standing at the left side of the road, handed him my papers and started to get out. But his knee was against the door, holding it closed. He looked at my photograph in the passport, scribbled something down, shoved the papers back under my nose and abruptly waved me on. Surely 30 seconds had not passed. I started the engine, inched forward. Was I supposed to pull out of the way somewhere where the car could be taken apart? Was I? Surely I wasn't. I coasted forward, my foot poised above the brake. Nothing happened. I looked out the rear mirror. The guard was waving the next car to a stop, indicating to the driver that he had to get out. On, I drove a few more yards. The guard was having the driver behind me open the hood of his car. And then I was too far away to doubt that indeed I had made it through that incredible checkpoint in the space of 30 seconds. My heart was racing. Not with the excitement of the crossing, but with the excitement of having caught such a spectacular glimpse of God at work. Now, that was a true story account from a, from a guy by the name of Andrew Vanderbilt. Okay, after this and many other miraculous workings of God in his life through his total reliance on and faith in him and hand-holding with Jesus, Andrew went on to start the international aid organisation for persecuted Christians known as Open Doors which operates in about 60 countries worldwide. Willowburn, what are the open doors that God has set before you in your life and in our city? Willowburn, what are the obstacles that are hindering you? Are you holding hands and walking closely with Jesus? And Willowburn, let's pray to overcome and enter the open door in Jesus' name. Thanks.